Again, as most of you are aware, this past week was our youth camp, and uh, many of you asked if I have survived, and I said yes, and so did the youth. Uh, we didn't lose one, so that was a good deal. It was a blessing to spend time with the youth. We saw some uh, wonderful things. There were times when the youth staff were sitting uh, off because the youth all gathered at one table and made no room for us, and at first I was offended, but, uh, but then they were interacting in such ways that was just, uh, it was amazing to see that kind of camaraderie that was being built, and that was part of that. And the other thing that we noted as we uh, were seeking to impart to them spiritual truths is that we built the whole uh, week around looking at a hymn, trying to discern if the hymn was biblical and that hymn was in Christ alone. And uh, I tried to play that hymn on my guitar, and I, I'm just not talented enough on the guitar to make that big, and so there was a piano there, and I got up on that piano. And I want to tell you that when those youth sang that song, every we did it twice every meeting in the beginning, then there was a lesson on it, and then we sang it at the close. And every time, there was just more meaning and more power behind the singing of the song. And I know the singing of a song is not in itself telling of whether a spiritual event has taken place in the lives of our youth, but we're so grateful that uh, they are learning these truths and that they love the truths that uh, are behind that particular hymn. And that was one of the goals of this year's camp, was to teach the youth about having a biblical worldview, one that governs everything that they do, even down to the very songs that they sing. And the call and the challenge made to them was to be discerning, to examine carefully why they do what they do through a biblical framework. And to do this, we brought this particular text, 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14, to their attention. And I'd like to bring it to your attention this morning. If you would stand with me as I read these two verses as they serve as our text this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, writes this, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now I submit to you that there is an awful lot packed into these two verses. Two verses which I would say in many respects are really just echoes of one another. They re reflect much of the same truths with just a slightly different emphasis. I would have you note that there are two exhortations, two imperatives, two commands that are given in these two verses. The first one is to retain, retain the standard of sound words. And the second is to guard, guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. In a moment, we will more carefully flesh out what all of this means and what's meant by sound words and treasure. But at this point, let me tell you that sound words and treasures ultimately refer to teachings, to what we refer to as doctrine. And doctrine, if I might give you a very simple definition, doctrine is simply what we know to be true and right according to God's word. 
doctrine or teachings are what we know to be true and right according to God's word. What Paul has in, uh, in his immediate view then is the gospel itself, the very truths that bring salvation, the teachings and the doctrines concerning the glorious person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who saves sinners and then instructs them concerning their service to God. Ultimately, Paul, here in this letter, seeks to impress upon Timothy, and I pray that the Spirit of God will impress upon us, that the Scriptures are to be our sole and final authority for determining whether something is good or evil, whether something is right or wrong, whether it is helpful or harmful. And the reason why this is so important is because there are many things that are taught by people today obviously those things that are taught outside of the church, but sadly there are many things taught even within the church today that are simply not found in scripture. I just was watching a video the other day where a very well-known apologist was saying that the Bible nowhere teaches that the earth is some merely six or 7,000 years old, that science has proven that it's 14 billion years old, a very well-known Apologist. Well, where does he get that? He didn't get it from Scripture, I promise you that, because nowhere in Scripture are we given any indication that there would be such time frames, but I'll move on because that's not the thrust of our message here. The issue is that there are things that are taught in the church, and the question for us always must be, where stands it written? Is that what God's word declares because if it goes against something that the bible declares or if it's not there then it is wrong therefore the call of paul to timothy you must retain the standard of sound words and you must guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you as is necessary whenever we consider a passage of scripture especially one that we haven't been going through verse by verse in the letter, we must consider the context. The letter itself clearly identifies for us who is the author, the Apostle Paul. And he is writing to a younger man, a man who wanted to faithfully serve the Lord, and he is, his name is Timothy. And we see this back, of course, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You might need to remember that Paul at this point is quite old. He's served the Lord faithfully for many years, and he's quite aware that he is not going to be on this earth much longer. He writes then to his beloved friend, a very dear and faithful companion in the things of the Lord, and really some commentators regard Second Timothy much like Paul's last will in Testament. These are essentially the very last words that we read of Paul before he would go to be with the Lord. And what is it that Paul wants to impress upon Timothy? Of course, a Sunday school answer would be Jesus Christ. He does want to impress upon Jesus, uh, Timothy Jesus Christ, but even in doing this, Paul reminds Timothy that if you truly know Jesus Christ, if you love Jesus Christ, if you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, then there are responsibilities that you have. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, we 
find something of Paul, what he understood about Timothy, if you just look up a few verses. Paul writes, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Essentially, we're reminded here that Timothy is a believer in Christ. And he's one who has been given, as all believers are, a spiritual gift. And it would appear that Timothy's spiritual gift was in part that of an evangelist, of being able to faithfully speak to others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might make note that Paul reminds Timothy to do the work of an evangelist over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. And as is true of each one of us, as we have spiritual gifts, we have these callings from God, is it not so that we can sometimes lose focus? That we can sometimes get wrapped up in the things of this world and we forget to do what God has not only called us to do, but also has gifted us to do. And so Paul reminds Timothy of his gift and his calling in verse 8. Notice it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul had a sense that with his now being imprisoned, with his now being incarcerated for speaking of the gospel of Christ, that this testimony, he calls it in verse 8, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the proclamation of the gospel that Timothy might now be holding back. I mean, if Paul got thrown into prison for speaking the gospel, what will happen to me if I speak the gospel. Perhaps Timothy was not as bold as he ought to have been in proclaiming and living out gospel truths. Isn't that the way it is at times for us? We can come to feel self-conscious when speaking to others about Christ, that what we might be saying, uh, that what we're saying might sound a little bit too miraculous, that people might look at us with mocking and ridicule. How can you believe these things? It's a, an ancient book and it's myth and legend. And Paul reminds Timothy, do not be ashamed ever. Never be ashamed of who Christ is and what he has done. And never ever be ashamed of his servants if they suffer for the sake of the gospel. It is not until we get to verses 13 and 14, after some reminders of God's sovereignty and salvation in verses 9 through 11, and of Paul's own confidence in the gospel in verse 12, that he now gives these two charges as found in verses 13 and 14. What are they? Retain the standard of sound words and guard the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, again, these words were first given to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Yet the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include them now in Holy Scripture in order to provide us with the same exhortations. In other words, I submit to you that every true believer in Christ has the responsibility of retaining sound words while guarding the treasure which has been entrusted to them. I submit to you that if we would live well for Christ, if we would die well for Christ, if we would live unashamed for Christ, 
it requires that we do these two things. Retain the sound words and guard the treasure which has been entrusted to us. Like Timothy, every believer in Christ is the beneficiary of what Christ has revealed as truth, as doctrine of what is good and right in God's sight. And he's done this, of course, through the apostles, men like Peter and, and Paul, and Matthew and John and others. And so as we consider 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14, I would have you notice with me two responsibilities that believers have. And the first is this our responsibility to sound words. Again, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. We begin where Paul begins with this call. It is a command, this exhortation. This is an expectation. I am impressing upon you. I have this expectation upon you because scripture places it on all of us that we retain the standard of sound words. But it begs the question, what is your standard? What is your standard? The verbal command is retain, a word that means to hold fast or to keep firmly. It has the idea of possessing something completely. The idea is of holding on or possessing something. It is the same verb, interestingly enough, used in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. What happened in chapter 1, verse 18? Well, we read that it is said there that Mary was found to be with child. It's the verb here that we have. It was that Mary was possessing, holding on to this child. Paul uses the same verb back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And there... I'll just read the text for you, 1 Timothy 1.12. Paul says this, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now that's kind of strange. He begins with this phrase, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally, the Greek would read this way, I hold or I possess in gratitude Jesus Christ. I'm holding on, I'm possessing gratitude for Christ our Lord, or I retain in gratitude Christ Jesus our Lord. This word retain is not one that we use too often in our regular conversations. Uh, we may speak of retaining a lawyer for some legal manner that we might possess someone on our side who would represent us legally. But just what is it that Paul desires for Timothy to retain? Paul writes, the standard. Now, if you're reading with me from the NASB 95, you might note what we call a marginal reading there. And a marginal reading is just a, a, another way that you might understand the original text gives us insight into what the author meant. And there you might notice it says, hold, retain, hold the example. Paul is urging Timothy to keep hold, to possess fully the example. But now what is the example? This is the word standard, another word that we do not often use in our regular conversation today. The Greek word for standard is, here is hupotoposis, hupo meaning under, and tupos, where we get our English word type. Originally, the word tupos spoke of a, a sketch or an outline. It might be a blueprint that was used to guide or direct some project. So the, building, uh, the, the builder gets his blueprint from the architect, 
and the, then the builder submits himself to that sketch, that, that drawing as he constructs the building. This word standard then speaks of the general rules and expectations that a person is placed under. We speak of a prototype, a model, a first edition upon which every other model is based. And ultimately what Paul is pointing to then is Jesus Christ in his gospel that he told Timothy back in verse 8 to not be ashamed of that testimony, not ashamed of that gospel. The gospel is our type. The gospel is our standard. The gospel is the example, the sketch, the blueprint of everything that we are to know and everything we are to believe. But Paul identifies the standard or blueprint. He uses this phrase, sound words. The word sound there literally speaks of being healthy, wholesome, or uncorrupt. And usually we think it of, of being sound mind or sound body. I'm not sure my body was sound when I got back from youth camp, but it's getting there. But the idea of being healthy and wholesome. But this is used with regard to words. So we're speaking of healthy, wholesome, uncorrupt, unsullied teachings. And we are immediately struck then with the reality that with the scriptures, we have God's own truth, God's own standard, God's blueprint of all that we need or should even want to determine how we ought to live and how to discern what's good from bad. Sound words, the word words there is actually the word uh, logos, we get uh, in the beginning was the word. This is plural, the words. And it speaks of divinely inspired, divinely revealed, absolute, unique, perfect, sufficient truth. The standard of sound words contains everything necessary for life and godliness, everything necessary for salvation, everything that you could ever want to know on how to please God is contained in these sound words. And what Paul is urging Timothy and the Spirit urges us is to possess or hold firmly to everything necessary for salvation. The verb retain is in the present tense, and so we might actually translate it this way, that we are to retain and to keep on retaining and never stop retaining, keep on possessing, keep on holding to this standard, to this blueprint. But then that begs another question. What is the source? Where do we come to know this particular blueprint of sound words, this prototype of the gospel of Jesus Christ? As Paul is writing this, let me remind you, as is true even in our current study in 2 Peter, that there are many false teachers running about, many false teachers speaking, of all, speaking on all sorts of unsound words concerning Jesus Christ. And the temptation is always this, who do you listen to? Who, are you, who is your source? Who are you going to believe? Who is Timothy to believe? What standard, what pattern, what sketch would he follow? Well, notice what Paul says next. He says, the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. This is really quite profound if you think about it. Not only does Paul now clearly claim apostolic authority, he's saying, I am speaking the truth 
from God. He knows that he has been appointed by God to communicate God's truth, but also that what he has faithfully taught Timothy, these are in fact the sound words. That you can compare anything else, Timothy, to what I've written to you, and you will know that if it deviates from what you have heard from me, it is not sound. How would you like to be able to make that claim? Only the apostles could make that claim. The, this, Paul says, what you've heard from me is the true, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And at a time when there were many false teachers offering up various notions about Jesus Christ, Paul reminds Timothy to do what? To hold on to what you have, what you've heard from me, what you've received from the apostles, what you have heard about what Christ taught. The reason that Paul, uh, that Paul is speaking of these sound words is because these are the words of Christ. The standard itself is sound because these are God's words. And now I'm giving to you, Timothy, these very sound words. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul put it this way to the Thessalonians saying, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God which you have heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God the word which also performs its work in you who believe. So the real question becomes, is the word working? And is it working in accordance with all that has been written, all that has been proclaimed by Christ in his apostles? So the type, the model, the example, the sketch, the standards are sound, healthy words and teachings, teachings that are consistent with what Paul and the apostles had taught even as they, were as they received them from our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul would state this again to Timothy in the very next chapter. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, we read, These things which you have heard from me, he says again, these gospel truths, you've heard them in the presence of many witnesses. It's not some hidden truth. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There is to be a chain, a line of succession from Christ to the apostles, to faithful men, to more faithful men, and on and on. The model example, the standard, this blueprint, is to be learned from the primary source. And then it is to be taught it is to be handed down to others who will use that same standard then to teach others. Beloved, that's what we're doing in this church every Sunday. Parents, that's what you're to be doing every opportunity you have with your children. You're imparting gospel truth. Don't make it up and don't mess it up. Go to the source, to the word of God, and proclaim it faithfully. But this command to retain or to hold uncorrupt sound words means more than simply knowing them. That's the danger that we get into today. We can be all wrapped up in head knowledge. I know all of these wonderful truths. I, I know about the sovereignty of God. I know about all of these wonderful intricate doctrines and I can talk to you about them. But Paul is not simply concerned about knowing them as much as we need to. He is also concerned with the doing of them. 
he desires Timothy and the Spirit desires us to be doers of the word, intentionally living them out. Where do we see this? Well, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul would get to that when he says, you, Timothy, however, notice what he says, continue, continue in the things, continue doing the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from where you have learned them. Where did he learn them? From the apostle Paul. Timothy would have also been blessed with hearing from the apostle John while he was in Ephesus. So knowing where you have heard these things, continue in them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We retain or keep the standard by learning the truths of Scripture, by believing them and then doing them. It is the teachings of the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, Old Testament, the word of God that serves as our standard that we are to keep. These are commands and commandments of the Lord that we are to keep and to do. This is not only Paul's charge to Timothy, lest you think, well, that's just what Paul says to Timothy, but it characterized the very early church from the beginning. They were, in the words of James 1, through 25, not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word, doers of sound words, doers of the standard of sound words. And beloved, one of the best ways that I can submit to you to hold on to the gospel truths is to do them, not simply know them, but to practice them. To know and practice sound words takes great effort. It does not come naturally, and it's not easy. At the end, I'm going to give you some practical things to consider with that, but just think about how uh, difficult it can be to hold the example of sound words. In Jude 3, we read that we are to earnestly and fervently contend, fight for the faith, which has once for all been handed down to the saints. The world will tell you to look elsewhere. Your flesh will tell you to look inward. False teachers will tell you to look for something else and something different. But everything that we need for life and godliness is contained in the sound words which we have heard from God's messengers. These are the sound, healthy, good, proper words by which if we live by them, we can properly discern all things. These are the sound words that, according to 2 Timothy 3.17, make the man of God complete and proficient, well-fitted and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me pause and ask you, are you earnestly contending for the faith? Can you honestly say you're holding on tightly the example, the standard of God's wholesome, healthy words? Because without them, you will fail to rightly know what pleases God. Without them, you will not be keen to discern right from wrong, good from bad. Without them, you will find yourself becoming ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and his servants. Before we leave this verse, notice that Paul adds one more expectation to this command to retain the standard of sound words. And I would ask it in the form of this question, what is your stimulation? What stimulates you on? 
At the end of verse 13, we find that what is to stimulate that, which is to be the guiding motivation for the retention of sound words, is to be in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does this mean? No one likes an ogre. No one likes a cruel taskmaster. No one likes a hypercritical judge ready to pounce on any infraction with a spirit of condemnation. You did that, you're toast. Theological term. Paul calls Timothy, and the Spirit calls believers. He says, You are to keep, you are to hold on to this standard of sound words, but you're to keep it with, keep it in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we are to know the gospel, to know what is good and right according to God's word. We are to hold them with intensity. You are to hold them with a conviction that is unwavering. We will not submit to anything that is contrary to God's word. You can die on that mountain. However, we are not to hold them with some kind of self-righteous, unloving spirit that simply tears others down. For in the end, such aggression will only stir up controversy and contention. Too often, beloved, we can be found guilty of causing others to be offended when we share the gospel. But listen, not because of the truth we proclaim, but instead because of the unscriptural and uncompassionate way we proclaim it. The standard of sound words, the understanding of the gospel of Christ, this blueprint that guides us not only into salvation, but how to live for God, how to discern what is good and right as opposed to what's bad and immoral and ungodly, is to be proclaimed, Paul says, in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? The idea, beloved, of in the faith speaks of that which is consistent or in accordance with the faith that is in the context of the gospel, or, and I'm more inclined to think of it this way, it speaks of having, are you ready for this? The same fidelity, the same commitment to the truth, the same trustworthy, forthright, and appropriate way that Christ himself proclaimed the truth of the gospel when he walked on the face of the earth. That when we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim sound words, it should be with the same fidelity, the same faithfulness as Christ when he was on the earth. This is a call, beloved, to imitate Christ. To read how he proclaimed the truth in the gospel and then to emulate him and his sound words. What Paul exhorts here, I believe, is but an echo of what he told the Corinthians some 10 years earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. What is Paul saying? Imitate me, he says, in the faithfulness to the truth that you've heard from me, because even I am imitating Christ and the faithfulness which I have heard from him. 
But in addition to in the faith, any proclamation of God's standard is not only to be done then with that same fidelity, that same trustworthiness, that same uh, conviction of Christ, but it's also to be done, he adds, how? In love. The word love, of course, agape, we think of that word quite often. Agape is seeking the highest good for another regardless of the cost. It is speaking of God's standard then with a good heart, a good attitude. It is speaking with kindness and compassion for unbelievers as well as towards the immature or improperly taught believers. Our motivation in proclaiming sound words is never to obliterate the person who does not believe them or live by them. Our goal is always to present the truth of the gospel to them in such a manner that the Holy Spirit then might bring conviction and then conversion. And if they do not believe, he will bring condemnation. Notice the standard of sound words is to be kept by us who are who are to be keeping with the faith and love which we find where in Christ Jesus. Thus, to hold the example or standard of sound words, I say to you, is to follow the example of Christ himself. This is our duty, to do the things as taught by the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. Just how important is it for believers to retain the standard of sound words? Well, it brings us to our second point. Not only do we have the responsibility to sound words, we have a responsibility to guard the treasure. Look at verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. As I said, in many ways, Paul is simply saying the same thing he did in verse 13, only he's doing it with a little bit of a a notable nuance, and so let us consider that. We consider first the question, what is your task? Rather than the previous verb retain, Paul uses a different imperative for us here. He uses the word guard. And the word guard means to keep watch over or to preserve. Literally, it speaks of keeping something isolated from everything else so that you might keep an eye on it, that you might protect it and keep it from harm. It is holding something so dear uh, as to to focus your attention on it. Negatively, it could have been used by a, uh, a prison guard to, to set somebody apart so that he can keep his eye on him. But unlike the word retain, which we noted was in the present tense, which is to retain and keep on retaining, Paul uses what's called the aorist imperative here, and that denotes a once-for-all action. So it's not guard and keep on guarding, It is make a resolve once and for all to guard what's been given to you, to guard this treasure, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And so the verb, think of the verb as a resolve, a mindset from which you refuse to be shaken. I will not ever stop guarding this because I decided 39 years ago that I would guard the treasure that God has deposited in me. It is to be a life-governing principle, a mindset from which we refuse to be shaken. One of the resolves of Jonathan Edwards, what he wrote when he was about 20 years old, reads this way, resolved to study the scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently 
as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Now, what Jonathan Edwards did here is he made a once and for all resolve that would govern the rest of his life. He would constantly give himself to this reading of the word. He decided to do it, and that's what he did, this once for all reserve that would lead Edwards to maintain that present, active, continuous action of reading his Bible, keeping on reading it so that he may do what? Keep the resolve. If you don't resolve to read God's word, you're not going to keep on reading God's word. Our text calls believers to make a resolve once for all to guard the treasure entrusted to him. And he is to do this essentially by retaining and keep on retaining and never stop retaining the sound words of the gospel. The task of the believer then is to resolve to guard and protect that which God has entrusted to you by always holding firm that blueprint of sound words but again it begs the question what is your treasure the original greek in the in verse 14 it actually reads this way and i have that up for you the good or precious thing which was entrusted to you guard by the holy spirit who dwells in us i don't know why the niv or any whatever version this is nasb does it the way that it does because paul's emphasis is not so focused now on the idea of guarding of that resolve but rather upon what is to be guarded the focus in the text is upon this good thing this precious thing that's what's translated as treasure that's been entrusted to you the word treasure is kalos in the Greek. It literally speaks of that which is beautiful, that which is precious, good, or valuable. In the context here, then, what is the good thing? What is this precious thing? Beloved, the most precious thing that we have been entrusted with is the gospel. We've been entrusted with the good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners so that all who believe on him will not perish but have eternal life. That this is the gospel is made clear again if we read back up in verse 8 where Paul called Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, the gospel, a fancy way of saying the gospel. This is the most precious thing that's been entrusted to you and to me, this faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that which is consistent with sound words, those words which Timothy had heard from Paul. The gospel now, Paul says, is precious. It is excellent. It is valuable. It belongs to God, and it results in his glory through the salvation of those who receive it by sovereign grace, not as a result of what we've done. It's not because, hey, look how good Ed is. I think I will give him and trust him with these sound words, with the gospel. No, it's because of what God has done for us. We see this if you look at verse 9. Just look up at verse 9 where we read, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. How? Not according to our works. I really don't know how people have such a hard time recognizing that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Because constantly we have these statements that he's called us to a, this holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We are then to guard, to 
keep pure and safe the sound words of the gospel, and that is to be regarded as our treasure, that which is most precious. And notice how verse 14 ends. This treasure, where is it? We read at the end of verse 14, which has been entrusted to you. When was the last time you considered your knowledge of the truth and the wonders of the gospel as that which God himself has deposited in you so that you would guard it? You would isolate it from all that is impure. The verb entrusted here speaks of making a deposit. You go to the bank, you may deposit your money. You entrust your money to the bank so that they will what? That they will guard it. That they will keep it safe. Some of you, if you think about uh, you're just getting started, you may not be as concerned as some of us who are getting older, but you think of your IRAs or your 401ks and you think about how much money is in it? Do you just want that money sitting around in your house? You entrust it. You keep it somewhere where it will not be lost or stolen. Beloved, the gospel, along with all of its gifts that enable believers to live, live it out and proclaim it, this, it says, has been entrusted. It has been deposited into your life. You who believe, you are to keep it safe. You are, or you are to guard it with your life. And that does not mean to hide it, but to know it, to use it, and to live it purely. Let the gospel, let the standard of sound words guide your thinking, affect your attitude, change your behavior. You treasure it in the sense that I'm going to utilize what God has given to me. Well, that asks, bring, brings another question. What is your, your tactic? And I use that T simply because it keeps my alliteration. How is it that we might guard this deposit of truth of the gospel? What is the tactic that we can use? What is our strategy? How do I keep this, this wonderful good news from being obliterated by my flesh or tainted by the world's thinking creeping into my own thinking. What is the strategy? Well, in verse 13, we notice that the source of the sound words were from the authoritative mouth of the Apostle Paul. We, notice, we noted in our study in 2 Peter chapter 121 that Paul would have been one of these men moved by the Holy Spirit who thus spoke from God. But now here in verse 14, the, the source, the, the, the tactic or strategy by which we might guard this treasure, this most precious gift of the gospel and, and its power to save and enable godly living, it doesn't come from us. It doesn't have anything to do with us except that we become the willing receptacles and then proclaimers of that which the Holy Spirit, it is through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. You will never retain the standard of sound words. You will never properly have the resolve to guard this treasure apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in you. You must be born again. You must have the Spirit of God 
in you. The resolve to guard is not to be done in human strength or by human logic. It must be done, Paul says, with the help or even more pointedly, by the agency of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And so the question becomes, are you saved? Because you can't do any of this unless the Spirit of God dwells in you. The only way any of us will ever do anything that pleases God, that we will ever be able to retain these sound words, that we will ever know what is truly right from truly wrong, what is truly good good versus that which is truly bad is by the agency of the Holy Spirit, who isn't just out there. Where does Paul say the Holy Spirit is? Notice he doesn't just say you. He says the Holy Spirit indwells us. Let me remind you what this means. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then I tell you based upon the authority of God's word that you do not have the Holy Spirit of God within you. You may try to do things that the Bible asks you to do, but in the end you will never succeed. You will always fail because there are not things that you are able to accomplish by yourself. The Holy Spirit we know is said to be the comforter, the the helper, the divine enabler to accomplish these things. And so if you are here this morning and you are uncertain as to whether or not you are even a believer in Jesus Christ, then know that you should not be concerned primarily with whether or not to retain and keep the pattern of sound words so as to live out and communicate the truths of the gospel. Rather, you need to do some business with God. You need to be... As Jesus said, born again, you need to believe that Christ died on the cross as your substitute for sin, that he actually paid your debt, the debt of, the, of incurring the eternal wrath of God that you deserved for your sins. If you believe Christ has done that for you on the cross and that you receive him as Lord and Savior, He promises to do something. He promises to make you a new creature. He promises to impart his Holy Spirit within you so that you will be able to do the things that please God and that you will know what is good and right. So it is only through or by the power of the Spirit of God that anyone will ever be able to guard the treasure, the gospel, that God has deposited into believers. By means of application, please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I know it's super small print up there, so turn in your Bibles to Romans 8 and consider with me what Paul says is part and parcel with possessing the Spirit or having the Spirit actually possess and dwell you, and what happens if you do not have the Spirit. It is a contrast. And Paul begins with a very famous statement, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have believed, if you have received the truth of the gospel, you do not stand in condemnation. You can celebrate your new life in Christ. In verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
In other words, Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. There's no law that you could keep that would enable you to say there's no more condemnation for me because of myself. It's found in Christ, in Christ alone. In verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Who did it? God did it. How did he do it? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You have two ways of operating your life, either according to this flesh or by the spirit of God who dwells in you. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, do some business here, folks. If, if you are according to the flesh, you set your mind on things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, they set their minds on what? The things of the spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death. The wages of sin is death. But the mindset on the spirit is what? Life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh, here's the contrast, it's actually hostile to God. Well, I'm not really that mad at God. If you are trying to live in your flesh, you are hostile to God. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. There's total depravity. And those who are in the flesh cannot do what? They cannot do what, people? They cannot ever please God. End of story. However, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God does what? Dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, the idea here, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ dwelling in them, he does not belong to Christ. Going on in verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is the hope of eternal life, the ability that has a life that pleases God, a life that retains the standard of sound words, a life that is resolved to guard the treasure, the deposit of the gospel that has been entrusted to you. How may we live well and unashamed for Christ? We must do it by retaining the standard of sound words. Now, I have some things I dotted down here as we close. I'm going to be very rapid in this, and they are not on the screen. But I want to give you nine ways in which you can work on retaining the standard of sound words. And some of them are going to be simple. And so just write down this in the reference and I will, the, the statement in the reference, and I will um, let you meditate on those. How can we retain the standard of sound words? We must read the word prayerfully. Number one, read the word prayerfully. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Prayerfully start every reading of God's word. Number two, we should come to God's word meditatively, meditatively. Joshua 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful not just to know it, but to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will, you will have success. So we read the Bible prayerfully. We read the Bible meditatively. Third, we read the Bible contextually. Read it in context, contextually. 2 Timothy 2.15, where, where Paul tells Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately, correctly handling the word of truth. We read contextually. Number four, we read God's word regularly, regularly. In Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates when? Day and night. Are you regular in God's word? Number five, we read God's word humbly. We read God's word humbly. James 1, 21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. We receive God's word humbly. Number six, we are to receive and read God's word obediently. Obediently. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Will you come with the intention to obey? Number seven, we are to read God's word. To retain God's word, we must read God's word expectantly. Expectantly. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword as, and piercing as far as the division of soul and marrow of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you expect God to do business with you when you read God's word? Number eight, just two more. We are to read God's word reverently. Don't just read it like you would any other book. Read it reverently. Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? And finally, by way of application, if we might retain the standard of sound words and guard the treasure that has been entrusted to us, we must come to God's word persistently, persistently. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you read God's word persistently? If we would do that, we can have a right and biblical worldview. If we would do that, we will, we will retain the standard of sound words and our resolve to guard the treasure that's been entrusted to us will be complete. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of these two verses that call us to be a people of the book, that call us to delight in the law of the Lord to meditate on it day and night, to be a people who do, are not merely hearers and knowers of the word, but effectual doers who are not deluded. Father, we thank you for these reminders and these challenges to our own faith. 
And I do pray that now as we come to the Lord's table, that you would help us to discern if in any of these areas that we've considered this morning, in the retaining of sound words and in the guarding of this treasure, we've been remiss, where we have sinned against you because we have not been diligent and persistent and expectant. I pray, Father God, that you would bring to each of our minds those things that we need to confess, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raise him from the dead, uh, that, uh, that we have this, this uh, we're, we're saved by the blood of Christ. Father God, I pray that you would move and guide us then as we continue this act of worship, that we might partake of the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy of our calling. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in Jesus' name.